First off, how did this get started? Where did this idea come from? Because this is spectacular. Welcome to Mornings on Main Street, Murfreesboro. I'm your host, Stephanie Miller. Thanks so much for joining us today. Well, we are getting ready to end out October Breast Cancer Awareness Month. This morning, I have a wonderful conversation for you that I had with Dr. Lindsay Keith. She has her private practice there in the Rutherford County area in Murfreesboro. She's also associated with Ascension St. Thomas Rutherford. But today, Dr. Keith talks to us about breast cancer risks as well as the latest in treatment. After that, we are highlighting the All-American 400 coming to the Nashville Fairgrounds Speedway, November 3rd, 4th, and 5th. I introduce you today to number 89, Dylan Fecho. He's kind of the hometown guy. He's a native of Lebanon. Today, he talks about what it's like to be at the race because it is one that he has won not once, but twice already. We'll have that conversation coming up for you in a few minutes. Dairy Berry's Heat and Air has been proudly serving the Middle Tennessee area for over 35 years. We have been voted Summer County's best heat and air company for the past eight years. For outstanding service, call Dairy Berries at 615-452-8121. When it comes to insurance, you want a name you can trust. Wendy Danielle Stack is here to help. With over seven years of experience, Danielle and her team are here to assist you in finding the right coverage for all of your needs. From auto and home to life and business insurance, we have customized options for everyone. We'll work with you to create a personalized plan that protects everything in your life that matters most. Call today and see for yourself why Daniel Stack is the go-to insurance agent in Clarksville. I'm Dr. Webb. I'm the owner and operator of Webb Aesthetic Plastic Surgery here in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. We offer services for both men and women, breast, body, and face for both. I meet with patients who are ready to schedule surgery. We talk about their pre-op appointments, what to expect before surgery, what to expect during and after surgery. We graduated medical school and nursing school the same day, and I had things that I believed in and stood by that I wasn't willing to compromise on. So when he came home, we had to discuss that we were on the same page with how we treated patients and staff. We want them to feel like they're part of our family. At Implant and General Dentistry, we're proud to offer dental care you can trust. Our team, led by Dr. Andrew Flips, is dedicated to serving our community with the highest quality of care. We offer comprehensive dental exams, cleanings, whitening, and more. With our compassionate and experienced team, you'll be able to smile with confidence. Come experience the difference for yourself. Call us today to schedule an appointment or visit our website to learn more. Statistics: One in eight will be diagnosed with breast cancer. Two out of three women after the age of 55. We're sitting down with Dr. Lindsay Keith, who has been a breast surgeon now going on her seventh year of residency. First off, thank you so much, Dr. Keith, for your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Right off, what are some of the risk factors for women um, as they get older? 
Okay. The gen- in general, the biggest risk factor is being a female, of course. So one in eight women, as you mentioned, are going to deal with breast cancer. So that's why it's very important to know know, you, know your own breasts, also know what your other risk factors are, which I'll, which I'll talk about, but also make sure you self-examine, which we'll also talk about. So risk factors, mainly um, most people think of family history. While family history is certainly a risk factor, um, not everybody with breast cancer has a family history of breast cancer. So there's a lot of mis, um, misconception there. Um, but really estrogen exposure in general. So starting periods at an early age, um, having uh, hormones after an uh, average age of menopause, which is 51, mm-hmm. um, estrogen exposure in general in that aspect, um, never having children or never carrying a child to term is actually a risk factor as well. Um, excessive alcohol use. Uh, and of course, again, family history is where we look into it as well. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And then let's talk about self-examination uh-huh. and when that should start and exactly what you are looking for. Yeah. There's no uh, great guidelines for when it should start, but in general, my recommendations are to know your own breast because I have women that are girls really that come to me at 16, 17, um, that have masses and they found them themselves. Now, uh, most of the time, 16 and 17 years old, 17 year olds aren't doing regular breast exams, but certainly by the time you're in your early 20s, you should know kind of what's normal for you and what's not. Uh, so lumps, bumps, masses, anything that's new uh, and not going away after about two weeks would be concerning. Uh, pain is actually very rarely a sign that something bad is going on. So one of the most common things I see is breast pain. Well, good. I always say good. You have breast pain because that's rarely a sign that something bad is going on. Really, I can count on one hand how many times pain has been associated with a cancer diagnosis. So that's not really a sign of cancer, but it certainly gives people reason for concern. They, you know, call their doctors, go to their doctors. But it's really masses that are sort of fixed or stuck to the surrounding tissue, masses that are sort of mobile or kind of move underneath your fingers or um, are smooth are usually cysts or a benign tumor called a fibroadenoma. They're not usually a cancer diagnosis in those cases. So it's really just knowing your breasts. Uh, On average, I usually recommend people examine them once a month because if you're examining them every day, you might not notice changes. Just Mm -hmm. as if you see somebody every day, you're not going to notice weight loss. Uh, as if you see them once a month, you're going to notice some changes over time. Right. So um, once a month in the shower is the best place to do it because, you know, let soapy water be on your skin. It kind of helps things slide a little better so you can see if they're mobile. You can see if they're fixed to their surrounding tissue, things like that. I, I don't know about others, but my first initial reaction would be a little panic mm-hmm. if that if I felt something. Absolutely. What do you what can you say to women who are doing those self exams or they say they get that diagnosis of mm-hmm. breast cancer? What mm-hmm. can you say to them? For the for the women that does a self woman that does a self exam and finds a lump, don't delay. Um, two weeks is a long enough time for something you know, not concerning to go away. Um, a cyst related to your cycle will usually get smaller or less prominent. Uh, after about that two-week time period or even a month. Um, But if you feel something and you're concerned at all about it, don't ever hesitate to go to your doctor, Uh, primary care doctor, urgent care, uh, wherever you can go to sort of have yourself be heard about, hey, I found this thing. What do I need to do next? And then the next thing that you should do, depending on your age, is some sort of imaging. If you're less than 30, that imaging is usually going to start with an ultrasound. If you're over 30, that's usually going to start with a bilateral uh, diagnostic mammogram plus an ultrasound on the side that you're feeling something. So bilateral, both sides, diagnostic, they're looking for something. Uh, And then again, the mammogram is usually combined with an ultrasound. And that's the best way to sort of 
first look and see if there's anything bad. And a lot of times what happens is women do that and then they find, oh, well, you've got a cyst. You're going to be fine. And then you can have some, you know, pause for concern or um, less reason for concern. And then sometimes you'll still get established with a breast surgeon at that point because if it's symptomatic, meaning it's painful or it's growing, something like that, we can still do some things for that. But after you get a diagnosis, again, of course, now it's it's game time, as I call it. Now we have a diagnosis. Now it's time to go through all of the steps to figure out the things that we need to do next. Okay. What, where is treatment? How has that advanced throughout the years? Where are we now? Well, let's look historically on that because, you know, going through fellowship, you sort of learn about the history of breast cancer. And really prior to the 1970s, it was pretty barbaric, uh, to be honest. Um, so we thought that you had to have what's called Halstead's radical, ra radical mastectomy, which means taking uh, all of the breast tissue, all of what we call level one, two, and three lymph nodes. It's a lot of lymph nodes, uh, removing the entire pectoralis major and minor muscles. And then essentially you have skin on top of the ribs and it was very morbid. Um, but what they learned over time, uh, for many, many years is that, that women would still die from metastatic breast cancer, or they would still die from breast cancer, even the, despite having to have this major radical surgery. So then began a, a series of, of trials, um, uh, put forth by the NAPBC that um, have basically studied, you know, the radical mastectomy compared to what we call a modified radical mastectomy, which is where the breast and the levels one and two lymph nodes go, but the muscles stay in place. And over time, essentially, as all of these, um, I'm talking about surgical case studies, as all these surgical studies kind of came about, we found that you could do less and less surgery and still get by with um, similar survival rates. Okay. So surgically, we're doing less, um, which is a good thing um, in terms of how much tissue we have to take, how many lymph nodes we have to take. And now what we're seeing is sort of a de-escalation of lymph node surgery, or meaning not doing as much surgery in the lymph nodes because the morbidity associated with lymphedema for the, for the rest of that patient's life is pretty extreme. And it doesn't happen to everybody, but it does happen to, to many that have the full lymph node section plus some other procedures that go along with it. Mm -hmm. So in, in terms of surgery, we're seeing less and less of it. Now we're actually starting to see some cryotherapy or freezing a tumor that's um, sort of new and up and coming. But when it comes to survival, truly what has made a difference is systemic treatment. And by that, I mean um, the medical oncologist that's usually part of the team when treating you. Uh, talking about anti-hormonal therapies that have improved over time, uh, systemic chemotherapies and immunotherapies or targeted therapies that have improved over time, and even some targeted oral medications or oral medications that target specific receptors have um, have been um, come about over time. And those are truly where survival benefits have, have uh, made strides there over the years. Good. So we've had a significant um, improvement in breast cancer care over the past 50 years. And when you think about time... Mm -hmm. Um, the amount uh, or the, the level of improvement that we've made in just that short period of time is, is dramatic. And with that also, sorry, I have a lot to say about no, this I, No, please. With that also is um, mammograms, uh, early detection. Mm -hmm. um, and that didn't really start in the breast cancer world until around the 90s. Um, that's really when mammograms, the, the, incident, or the, the use of mammograms started to improve significantly in the 90s. Uh, a lot, if you were to look at a survival curve from, from breast cancer altogether, the survival curve and use of mammograms is side by side. So it's early detection, really. Any cancer that you find early is typically curable. So again, making sure that you're having your regular doctor visits, making Absolutely. sure that you're conducting those monthly mm -hmm. um, self-breast exams, you mm -hmm. know, while you're in the shower or whatnot mm -hmm. at any time. 
Is there anything that we can do with our lifestyles that can maybe decrease our chances? The only thing that has really been shown to improve survival, not only at diagnosis uh, or even prevent breast cancer, is keeping your BMI normal. Um, because when you think about hormones, all hormones are stored in body fat. And so uh, it's, it's very um, uh, counterintuitive to postmenopausal women um, when they hit, go through menopause and they don't have any estrogen around anymore. Um, their, their tumors are most often um, hormone receptor positive. Uh, so they're fed by hormones. And so that confuses people because like, I don't have any hormones around. Yes, you do. It's just in your body fat. Okay. And so you can't really control that except for obviously keeping your BMI normal and trying to decrease that as much as possible. So that's really the only thing that has been shown over time to one, prevent it two, um, if you have breast cancer, improve your survival and decrease the risk of having it come back again. And that was going to be my next question. You know, if a woman has breast cancer or a man, um, do we need to be checking other areas or, you know, talking with our doctor to make sure we don't have cancer anywhere else? Yeah, sure. There are some um, cancers that go together. Okay. Uh, when we think about gene mutations, there are some clusters of cancers that go with specific gene mutations. Mm -hmm. In the breast cancer world, the two, uh, two of the highest risk gene mutations are BRCA1 and 2. They're BRCA1 and 2. Those are what everybody kind of knows from the um, Angelina Jolie. I believe she was BRCA2 positive. But ultimately, um, uh, you know, prophylactic mastectomies, things like that. But there are actually several gene mutations, at least eight to 10 relatively high risk um, genes that increase your risk for breast cancer. And for those patients, uh, certainly they would be candidates for what we call high risk breast cancer screening. Mm -hmm. um, there are some calculations that we use also to determine outside of gene mutations, not having a gene mutation if you are at a higher than average risk for breast cancer over your lifetime. And those folks also qualify for high risk breast cancer screening. Okay. How common is it for a man to see breast cancer? 1% of all breast cancer statistically are in men. Okay. When a man comes with a mass or a lump or a bump, most often it's not something cancer related. But when it is, um, obviously men, men still get a mammogram and they still get a mammogram on both sides. I call it a manogram. So that, you know, but they still get to wear the same cape and typically yeah. pink and, you know, uh, bright colors, but ultimately they get the same workup as a woman, uh, and they get the same treatment in general as a woman. Okay. So, um, in general, they get a mammogram to diagnose it. They get a mammogram plus ultrasound to diagnose it and have a biopsy. Most of the time they are estrogen receptor positive in men. Uh, they usually present at slightly higher stages, meaning a little bit further advanced because most of the time men wait. You know, they're like, this can't be breast cancer. Right. Uh, so they wait until uh, it's usually a little bit larger before either their spouse or um, or they get concerned enough to go get it checked out. But statistically, again, 1% of all of them, um, are, all, all breast cancers are in men. But the first one of the first things that we do, do is look at genetics. Okay. And so that's a it's an automatic indication for genetic testing because it technically shouldn't happen. Right. And a male. Okay. A couple so, more questions for you. Yeah. Now that there is a position called a, the navigator, you mm -hmm. know, for someone to be able to work those patients and families, what are your thoughts? How is that, how helpful has that been for those who go through the diagnosis and treatment? Yeah. So, um, this is a journey, mm -hmm. uh, and not a sprint. And, um, ultimately there's a lot of moving parts, uh, when it comes to both, um, the diagnosis, the treatment, and then even surveillance, uh, long-term afterwards. So a navigator really helps us um, kind of keep those things on track. Uh, not everybody gets everything when it comes to treating breast cancer. And so it helps patients to kind of understand what, what their path, what their journey is going to be, and then help navigate them through those uh, next phases as well. 
So it's, it's great. Uh, I, I'd say so. And again, we'll be speaking with um, a, a nurse who plays that role as breast cancer navigator and working with families. So we'll get to hear more about that coming up just a little bit later. Dr. Keith, is there anything that I haven't asked that you would like to share, maybe beneficial for people to hear? Sure. Um, screening is important. Um, screening is done in a patient that doesn't have any symptoms, uh, meaning one, uh, on average, I don't think we've gone over this, but average risk uh, is, uh, again, 12% or one in eight. And mammograms really should start at 40 years old uh, and once a year. There are some guidelines out there that finally just reversed instead of saying every other year uh, and starting at 50. Now it's 40 years old and once a year. So that is the guidelines. And that's absolutely what you should follow. So if we would like to connect with you, if someone would like more information or would like to connect in some way, how do they do that? The easiest way would be to go to lindsaykeith.com. That's L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-K-E-I-T-H.com. Mm -hmm. um, you'll see my face there, uh, and I'll have a phone number there, and that phone number is 615-900-2621. Uh, uh, and, of course, it has my address on there as well, but that's 1830 Heritage Park Plaza in Murfreesboro, 37129. And you work with a local hospital, but you do have your own private practice uh -huh. as well. Yes. I, work, uh, I do my surgeries at St. Thomas Rutherford Hospital, um, but this is uh, my private practice in the community. Okay. Thank you for that. We really do appreciate it. And all the information so helpful. Again, really do take note and start those, um, you know, those breast exams, you know, in a timely fashion and just... Make sure that you're getting your annual checkups for sure. Okay. Thank you, Dr. T. Thank you. Keith, stick with us here on Mornings on Main Street. We have more coming up right after this. Welcome to the Omni Nashville Hotel. Urban elegance with a vintage touch. Our 800-room hotel opened up in the fall of 2013 with 746 guest rooms and 54 suites. Drugs, serving our community since the early 1900s. We're a full-service drugstore in Soda Fountain located in a building on Main Street that is on the National Register of Historic Places. We have a staff of pharmacists with over 70 years of experience and we are committed to offering the best care and service to our community. We're now offering healthcare testing and treatment with positive results, a one-stop shop. Stop by our pharmacy today or visit our website at thomasdrugs.net. He shoots, and he scores! getting excited and gearing up for the 39th All-American 400 happening at the Nashville Fairgrounds Speedway. There is a hometown favorite in the mix there. He is from Lebanon, and I am talking about number 89, Dylan Fetcho, and we have him with us this morning. Dylan, good morning to you, and thanks for joining us. Well, good morning. Thanks for having me. Talk about some accolades already under your name. I mean, you're a three-time late model champion. You're going into this where you have, you know, taken home the win in Pensacola two times already in Nashville. What is it like for you to get ready for another Nashville race or a race happening here near your home? 
Oh uh, yeah, it's exciting. Um, like you said, we we've got two championships there, and we're we're uh, really looking forward to this next weekend trying to add a third one. Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. And I believe in one of your interviews that I was able to find, you said it's kind of rare for someone to win back to back in in Nashville. That it's it's a rare thing to be done. Is that correct? Is that right? Am I right? In that? Yeah, yeah. There's been a few people to do it, but uh, to do it uh, two years in a row, like you said, is pretty tough. So. Uh, yeah, that's our goal, and we're four points out of the lead coming into this last one, so it should be exciting. Oh, I would say so. How do you – what is that prep for you? So you have, what is it, a year's time in between races or in between, say, the All-American 400? Yeah, uh, but we usually race about three or four times a month, so we're we're always busy racing. And whether it not be Nashville, just uh, racing around the country, we, we're always busy out in the shop. What does that in-between time look for you? Say you're busy. So what are you doing when you're not out there racing where we where we can see? Um, just maintenance on the car or either fixing the car from the previous race. And then uh, I actually work for some other people that race also. So we got their cars in our shop. Oh, that's awesome. And you say our shop. So this is a family affair for you. So this is a – all of you guys are involved in this. Am I right? Yeah, correct. It's at my dad's house. He's got a shop behind his house, so. How cool is that? Because you started racing or you started, I guess, your uh, your interest in getting into the car thing when you were, what, four years old? Yeah, I was four years old. I started racing dirt go-karts uh, at all like the local fairs around around Tennessee. So, uh, yeah, we started doing that. And then I ran quarter midgets for a long time and then uh, raced legend cars. And now we're in the late models. What got you into it at age four? Is Was it already a family affair? Yeah, it was. My dad raced for a long time through the early 2000s and the 90s. So that's who got me into it. And uh, just it's been something we've done my whole life. So, Well, and I love hearing what got you into it. What keeps you going? What is that motivation for you each day to get up and to make sure either your training or your car is in great shape? What keeps you going? Yeah, sometimes it's tough, but um, really just the, the competition nowadays, it, it's, it's tough and it's a lot of fun racing. And all the people at the racetrack, we, we're kind of friends and we kind of make uh, more like a family or a, for, a family like place. You know, it's like everybody there, everybody loves each other and it's just a, it's a good time and try to be friends with everybody. Oh, I love hearing that. So as you're making those friends, I'm sure you're friends with other, other drivers. How is that, I guess, competition? How does that work with you guys? Because I know, I mean, that's uh, uh, got to be pretty heated sometimes, I would guess. Yeah, it can get heated. Um, we try to keep it calm and keep it cool, but uh, sometimes it gets heated. And like I said, I, I race with all my friends, and uh, for the most part, we get along. So, Would you say it's friendly competition for sure? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, having, you know, being kind of one of the leaders, you know, going into this, how do you stay cool under pressure? Like you get going in your racing. How do you keep your cool? Uh, yeah, uh, just kind of try to race, race, race yourself and try not to – get involved in the the drama part of it so um like this last race we were leading the race and had an engine fail on us so we actually had a really big lead in the points and now we're going into this last one down four so just kind of got to race against yourself and race against the track and try not to worry about other cars i love that you say yourself that you're racing against yourself and the track and really not the other so i, lo I love that you say that yeah uh usually you can you can try to race against your mind and try to keep the other cars out of your head and just do your thing. And usually it works out good.
Uh, good. And who's your biggest competition going into this, this time around? Uh, so I got two of my friends that I race with and we're always usually tight and it's Jackson Boone and Hunter Wright. So Jackson's the one that's leading the points going into this last one. So he's the one that we're going to have to, he's the one we'll have to try to keep our eyes on and try to beat this, this next race. Uh, well, you know, we're cheering for you and I know you have a lot of cheerleaders. Who's that main one who is there for you full force every time? Uh, of course, my dad and my whole entire family that's around me. And I've got some great sponsors that help us that they've been uh, super loyal to us over the years. And without them, we just couldn't do it. Who are your sponsors? Who are those? Would you like to mention them? Yeah, for sure. We got U.S. Tank. They've they've uh, they've been really good to us. And uh, Hunter Industrial on the quarter panels, they, they help us out a whole lot. So especially without them, too, we couldn't do it. Oh, that's great. Well, Dylan, any any words of wisdom for those who are, you know, interested in racing and they're young and they or they've already gotten into <laughs> racing? Any words for them that you can share? Yeah, just uh, if you do get into it, just never give up. And uh, sometimes it's a cutthroat sport. So you got to you got to keep grinding and just never give up and just do your best. What's next for you after the All-American 400? Uh, so this year we've only got two races left, which is the 400. And then we got to go to Florida for the snowball derby. Gotcha. Well, we wish you the very best Dylan. Thank you so much for your time and we will be cheering you on from the side. Cool. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course. Anytime number 89, Dylan Fetcho again, getting ready to race in the 39th all American 400 that is happening November 3rd, 4th and 5th at the Nashville Fairground Speedway. Stick with us here on Mornings on Main Street. We have more coming up for you after the break. Beginning January 1, Delta Dental of Tennessee is introducing enhanced benefits for persons with intellectual and developmental disabilities. It'll include extra cleaning times for people with special needs, extra time for exams. More importantly, we will create a training program that any dentist office in the state can go online and pick that up. But Delta Dental, we believe that the quality of oral health care should be accessible and inclusive for all. At Old Hickory Credit Union, we're member-owned, not-for-profit, and eager to serve our Robertson County community. Since 1934, we have strived to provide our members with a safe, reliable place to take care of all their financial needs. From checking accounts to loans to mortgages, we're here to help. Credit unions have to constantly adapt to meet the needs of an ever-changing market. However, one constant will always remain, and that is the service we provide to our members. Stop by our Greenbrier branch today. What separates us from other companies in Tennessee, um, that's going to be our, our mission to our customers, is to always improve the quality of life. Um, that's from taking care of your past to a friendly voice on the phone when you call, to a technician that comes out he's competent, he's going to solve the problem for you. We're considered a full encompassing service, so we're going to take care of 50 plus different pests, and we'll always have your back. Monty Hale, sports editor of the Murfreesboro Post. We've hit week 11 of the high school football season. A lot of big games on tap Friday night. They don't get any bigger than the one on Patriot Drive. It's the Battle of the Borough. It's Riverdale at Oakland. 
everything at stake, a region championship, a number one seed, the Warriors, seven and two overall, four and zero in the region. Oakland, eight and one overall, four and zero in the region. You know, for the old heads, old hats here in Rutherford County, that that takes us back many years where this game was always played on the final week of the season with the winner going to the playoffs, the loser going to a bowl game. Yes, a bowl game. Times have changed. It's been a long time since they played on the final week. Since Oakland coach Kevin Creasy came aboard and he's in his eighth season, um, he has never lost at home. He has never lost a region game. Riverdale's had some good teams, but certainly never able to get past Oakland. This, will it be different this year? This is probably the most talented Riverdale team we've seen in many years. Um, talent all over the field, skill positions, quarterback, defensive backs, linebackers. You say the same about Oakland. It's going to be a lot of fun. Get there early. And, you know, when you talk about the Battle of the Borough, may not resonate as much as it did years ago because there's Siegel and Rockville, Blackman now playing football in Rutherford County. But Oakland and Riverdale dates back to 1974. Uh, the schools actually were opening their doors in 1972. They thought it would be better at the time to have a cool down period and they didn't play the first two years they were open, but they played ever since and there have been some dandies and I look for it to be a dandy on Friday night out on Patriot Drive. I'm Monty Hale, sports editor of the Murfreesboro Post.